to you, Heavenly Father, with thanks for your word, whether it's Old Testament or new. It tells the same story, the story of your growing kingdom and your purposes on earth. And bless us today as we turn to this chapter that we might grasp something of your plans and purposes for us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as you're aware, of this morning I've decided to take something of a plunge in a completely different direction. In the last few weeks, we've been hearing from the Lord Jesus himself in the parables of Matthew chapter 13, and we've been encouraged to see how the kingdom of God grows. But for now, with the exception of next week and for the weeks in December leading up to Christmas, we're going to examine essentially the same theme, but from a very different perspective, given to us by the book of Ruth. Now, in the past, I think I've kept clear from the book of Ruth and maybe perhaps only thought about it on Mother's Day from time to time. And I say that to my shame because there's no reason why we shouldn't gain much encouragement from the story that's in the book of Ruth. And there's no reason why with Christmas coming, why we shouldn't tackle this book in order to lead us to Christmas, given where the book ends, with Ruth herself becoming a maternal ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to the book of Ruth we turn and we begin where you should begin, at the beginning. And the story is said as we read in the very opening verse, in the days of the judges. And the phrase carries with it some significance. By it, the writer of the book is telling us something here that God's people who know their Bibles well will readily understand. The phrase, in the days of the judges, occurs repeatedly throughout the days of the book of Judges and it's a phrase that usually accompanies this phrase which can be found also in the the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel and every man did that what was right in his own eyes. That phrase is a little code message, if you like, for showing that these days, the days of the judges, were often days of rebellion. Days in which God's people had drifted far from him. And in such days, it wasn't insignificant that God, in bringing his people back to himself, would allow a famine to afflict the land to discipline his people. And this is what we find in the opening verses. A famine forced this couple, Elimelech and Naomi, to leave Judah and to go and live in the land of Moab. Now whether that was the right thing to do is maybe a question for another day. Some suggest they should have stayed. They should have trusted in God's provision, but it's, it's certainly hard to state that with certainty. What we do know is that in going to the land of Moab, they were leaving behind the land of Judah 
the only land to which God had given specific promises of blessing. Now, while it may have been that they were only going to go to Moab for the short term, but in fact that short term became long term, 10 years. Now, what happened in the land of Moab is our study this morning. And the story naturally falls into three parts because there are three journeys, aren't there, in chapter 1 this morning. From Bethlehem to Moab, then the journey from Moab back to the border where something significant happens. And then in the third place, from the border back to Bethlehem. First then, consider the journey from Bethlehem to Moab in verses 1 to 4. Having made the move from Judah to Moab, which must have been difficult in itself, tragedy befell Naomi with the death of her husband there. The pain of bereavement and loss, on top of the pain of having to move under the most difficult of circumstances, a drought. Naomi became a widow with two sons, but then a widow with two married sons, Marlon and Killian marry, but they marry outside of the covenant. They don't marry Jewish girls, they marry local Moabite women. And no sooner do they marry that they die, leaving Naomi a widow with no sons and two daughters-in-law. Almost the complete picture of pain and sorrow and tragedy for a Jewish woman that you could ever imagine. Far from home, no husband to provide for her, no sons to provide for her, just her own grief palpable grief. It's a very sad picture, isn't it? I wonder if you could imagine the sense of despair that she must have known, losing the three men of her life, husband and sons. It's not one I want to quickly gloss over. Let's stop with her. Let's sit with Naomi for a minute, for a moment. If you were there, what would you say to her? Let's leave aside platitudes. What would you say to her? Let's leave aside being cold comfort or being like Job's friends. What can you say? Well, the writer of the book is showing us something simple but profound, that life is hard and that it is hard even for God's people. Sin has so damaged God's world that none of us are shielded from the effects of the fall. There's sickness, there's disease, there's death. And we need to hear this morning because out there are preachers telling you another gospel that if you follow Jesus, then everything's going to be fine. 
Everything's going to be wonderful. You can expect health. You can expect wealth and blessing and everything you've ever wished for and everything you've ever prayed for. I wonder if you've heard that message and then turned and looked at the scriptures and thought, someone's lying here. It's not the message of the scriptures. Because in the Bible, as you well know, we are reminded again and again that God's people can and do and will suffer. That losses and crosses are part of what we can expect as the people of God. The Apostle Peter says that much in his first letter as we read this morning speaking about fiery trials and how as believers we're not to let them catch us unprepared as though we're exempt from trouble or exempt from difficulty. We're not. Rather, the closer you are to the king, the more likely you are to draw the enemy's fire. And sometimes the closer you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, the more attention the devil will give you. And God, in the unfolding of his mighty providence in your lives, in the details of your lives, is working out a grand scheme that none can thwart. It was certainly the case in the lives of these people here. God-fearing people, ordinary people, hurting people. I wonder if you're hurting this morning. Are you hurting Has something happened to you or to your family? Have dreams that you've held dear been shattered? Have you known the taste of grief? Not once, twice, three times. Are you facing the surgeon's knife? Have you had some long cherished dream turn to dust? And the result is like Naomi feels. Pain, hurt, and there are times tears of sadness. And I put this to you, don't be surprised, because if you're not there at this moment, there will be a day when you will be hurt, when you will be crying. The fires the Lord puts us through are the common lot of all people, even his people, and how you respond in the midst of them, how you respond to them, is key to your maturity in Christ and your growth in grace. Secondly, verses 6 to 18, we read about their journey from Moab to the border. The scene moves on because, as the narrative tells us, Naomi hears that God has visited his people once again by giving them food in Judah. There's no future for Naomi in Moab now. No husband, no sons. She's in a foreign land. That's not to downplay the value of daughters-in-law, of course. I have two lovely daughters-in-law. But sons and husbands were vital for the support and the welfare and the protection of a widow, a family. So verse 6 and 7 tell us that she began, Naomi began to go back with her daughters-in-law, starting the journey to Judah once more. There's no saying what made Naomi stop along the way 
and tell Orpah and Ruth that they should leave her there and go back to their families. Had she been wondering about this all the journey along in her own mind? Had they been discussing it as they walked along together on the way back to to Judah? We may not ever find out those answers, but we do know that once when they came to a particular point, maybe it was the border, maybe not, the time came in her eyes for a parting of the ways. Leave me to go on, she says. You two go back. I cannot marry and produce you sons to marry now that I am old. And if I could, you'd be too old anyway. Go back to your people, my daughters. Leave me to go on alone. Now it's worth stopping to consider these words when she says to her two daughters-in-law, return, go back to your people, go back to Moab and go back to your gods. Don't you think to yourself, Naomi, how can you possibly say that? Surely you want these two women to be with you if only for companionship for the rest of your life. Surely you want them to stay with you. Isn't that what you'd expect? They were her daughters-in-law. But of course you're not thinking the way that Naomi's thinking and you're not thinking realistically either. See, just as there was no future for Naomi in Moab, there was no future for these girls in Judah. They were Moabite girls. They didn't worship the God of Judah. And there was no guarantee that they would find a husband who would marry a Moabite S, who would allow their wives to bring in their heathen Moabite gods into their homes which surely would be part of the bargain. There was no guarantee of sustenance. There was no guarantee of a home. There was no guarantee of food. They would be poverty-stricken beggars in Judah, eking out an existence from day to day, just surviving and nothing more. Does that help you appreciate why Naomi said to them, look, you're better off going back home. And Orpah, after a little few tears, does just that and you see her going off and we never hear of her again. But then there's Ruth. Ruth who says those memorable words which maybe you've heard before and have come to know and love when she says, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you for where you go I will go and where you lodge I will lodge. And your people will be my people and your God will be my God. In fact, in the Hebrew word, in the Hebrew, her words are just this. You go, I go. I live, you live, I live. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. That's all she says. Simple words. But what profound words. And you could ask yourself this morning, how did Ruth, how did she know, how did she say, how can she say this? Where did she hear these things that she could say them to Naomi? Well, very simple, she learned them from Naomi. 
See, in Naomi's response to her pain, in the way that she coped with her loss and her bereavement, though she was bitter and sad, she must have often spoken to Ruth in this way. And even though she found herself in a strange land, unable to sing the Lord's song, perhaps she could still use the language of the Lord's people. You see it in a number of ways if you look closely to the details of the text. For example, notice that Ruth echoes the language of God's own covenant promises to Israel. God had told his people in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I commit myself to save you and love you and keep you and protect you and redeem you. And here now Ruth turns God's promise around as she declares, your people shall be my people and your God my God. You see what she's doing? She's taking God's covenant for her own. She's identifying herself with those whom God has redeemed. Your people are mine and your God is mine. Remember too that Ruth has faced all of the discouragements that Naomi has thrown in her path. She's lost everything too. She's lost her husband. She has no earthly hope of recovery. And one of the only people in the world who knows exactly what it's like has gone back or is in the way of going back home. Ruth knows the way ahead is bleak if she continues to travel from Moab to Bethlehem, but she presses on. The only explanation that can account for her determination to make the journey is that her heart has been profoundly changed. She's been saved by grace and by grace joined to the God of Israel whose covenant name you notice in verse 17 she takes on her own lips. God's covenant name, Yahweh. May the Lord Yahweh, the Lord, do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. She takes the name by which God has revealed himself to Israel as their deliverer and their saviour, the name that speaks of covenant love and faithfulness to his people. She's not a half-hearted believer. See, there's a great difference between an almost believer and a true convert, the almost believer would follow Ruth, uh, follow Naomi on the path, perhaps because of personal loyalties, because of the love of a mother-in-law who has lost everything. But in the end, however strong those loyalties, the almost believer would turn back because Moab, Moab is home. But the true believer knows that to follow Jesus means to take up the cross. She knows, Ruth knows, as Paul puts it, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. But God himself has come and captured her heart and so she cannot but attach herself to Naomi and her God and make her God her own God. So do you see what's happening in the chapter? God is using and has used Naomi as an instrument through which his grace can flow into the life of someone else, namely a Moabite girl who doesn't belong, 
by birth or by works or by anything else to the covenant family. And maybe that might help you see why God allows you to go through some particular trial, some difficulty. He does that for you, though in the end it may not have anything to do with you. It's a humbling thing to learn, isn't it? That we are not as important as we think we are. That the reason why God may have brought a trial into your life, some suffering, some difficulty, is that you might help someone else. He has a purpose that's far greater than you can ever imagine, far greater than you can extrapolate, because he intends through you and through your response to your trial that you might learn how to help another. Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He wrote this, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same things that we suffer. God has a habit of not only making all things work together for good, but all things work together to bring others to know him. And that's part of the wonder of making yourself available in God's hands to do whatever he wants. Are you doing that? Are you praying, Lord, whatever it is that I must go through, please teach me and please use what I go through to bring salvation and blessing to someone else. That's the kind of response that God is looking for. Thirdly, it brings us to the third part of the journey in verses 19 to 22 from the, port, the border back to Bethlehem. And these verses tell us of a very important moment when the women of Bethlehem look up to the horizon and they see Naomi coming with Ruth and they say to themselves, could this possibly be Naomi? Because it kind of looks like her and it kind of doesn't look like her. And there's a girl with her and it's not Elimelech. I guess you've had the experience of seeing someone after many years, 10 years, and noticing how much they've changed. There was a news report on a brother or sister just recently who hadn't seen each other for 80 years. Imagine that. Hadn't seen each other for 80 years. Reunited. And imagine too for the women of Bethlehem who see Naomi whose face is the same but not the same because pain, grief and sorrow have etched their way into her appearance so that in appearance she is not what she was. She's gone away full, she's come back empty. She's gone away a woman with a husband and two sons and all her future before her and she's come back with the three men in her life buried. And she says to these women, don't call me Naomi. She says, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Now don't misunderstand Naomi. I don't think she was bitter in herself. I think what she's saying in that is that life has been bitter to her, that providence has been bitter. As in fact she says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And do you notice that? When trouble comes, she still knows that God's in it. God's still in it. She doesn't say, as many might, that when trouble came, God was powerless to help because he's not involved. 
No, God was involved. Her theology may not be perfect here, but at least she allows for the fact that God was in her circumstance. The hand of the Lord was there. She can see providence clearly enough, but she cannot see grace. Not at this moment, not yet. All she knows right now is her hurt and her pain. She's living with them. She can feel them. She thinks herself innocent and God unjust. She's complaining maybe that God has been overly severe, but she misreads God's hand in her sorrows, as we do also. What she sees is arbitrary and harsh. As she wallows in the bitterness of grief, the writer wants us to see that this woman woman who has drifted away from the Lord's hand is still ultimately not far from him. God is working in his providence to bring her back to himself. And there's a hint at that, a brighter design in verse 22. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's a hint of hope. If there's a harvest, the famine is gone. A hint that a season of divine rebuke has passed. There's a lesson in the last verse here. It's a lesson Naomi has not yet fully come to see and learn. But as we scan back over the ways our own hearts have dealt with suffering and hard providences, aren't we being summoned by the ugly spectacle of Naomi's backslidden, bitter heart not to rush too quickly to judge the Lord and what he's doing? We haven't seen the whole story yet. We're only at the end of chapter 1. Well, what then from chapter 1? Well, God is teaching us through this book that even in our worst moments and our deepest trials, even then he purposes good through grief. So don't think like the world does here and say to yourself that trials are proof that God doesn't care. His providence may at times appear to have a frown and things may not work out as you have planned. But God is behind every trial and every pain and there is nothing nothing outside his providential control. To think otherwise is to cut yourself off from the comfort of the truth that we, ho- we know that Father knows best. And even in pain and even in hurt and even in tragedy, he has a plan to refine you so that you become more and more like his son. This is what Job said. He said, He knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. A challenge for all of us this morning Are you willing to let God have his way? Are you willing to let God direct your paths as he sees fit?
even if the way ahead leads through pain and it hurts. Let's pray together. We come today, Heavenly Father, to thank you that you do know best. You are our Father and your purposes are being achieved and fulfilled through the toughest things that we face. We need to hear this from time to time, that your purposes are good, even though they involve pain and trial and grief. We thank you for what Naomi experienced and that in that she knew your hand was upon her. She didn't see the whole story and neither do we. We can't see what's ahead. But we trust ourselves to you who has all eternity, past, present and future, in your hands. And so we would submit ourselves to you and say, Lord, have your way, have your way and lead us and teach us how to respond when trials come. We ask for grace. We thank you that you will always answer a prayer like that for grace, for we need it and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.